Like Sarah said, my name is Lee Rickard. I am an elder here at the bridge as of January. I'm excited about that, really excited about uh, the work we're doing and where we're at as a church. I think we're really excited about this next season of ministry. Uh, my wife, Nicole, and I, uh, we're also supported missionaries of the bridge, and so we are grateful for this church that allow us to do ministry on campus where we get to help students hear about the gospel and train them up into be uh, multiplying disciples. And so we are grateful for this church as they help us do our job, as you guys do uh, as well. And so uh, it is my pleasure today to be able to preach one of my favorite passages uh, in all of Scripture because it's good news, and that's what the gospel means. It's good news. And I'm in awe of God and how he demonstrates his truth, and his compassion simultaneously. Today, uh, our scripture passage is about God's permanent, comforting, and loving presence with us. Even in the midst of our brokenness and loss, it's just a great picture of God's faithfulness to us. Before we read our passage, though, I want to share with you guys a story. Two days after my ninth birthday in the summer of 1999, I was invited by my, uh, to my best friend's birthday party uh, with all my other friends. And so we enjoyed playing games, swimming in his pool, and other general childhood fun. Then my friend's mom called out to me and told me that she had to take me home because something had happened. A dozen or more cars in my driveway greeted me on my arrival home, continuing to fuel my worried confusion. Upon entering the house, my mom told me that my dad was missing. The small boat he was on, on while fishing for salmon on Lake Michigan, uh, was, capped, was hit and capsized by a larger boat, throwing all the occupants into the water. My dad was the only one missing. I later understood in my young mind that missing meant presumed dead. After enough time had passed, that meant that my dad had died and would no longer be with us. I wasn't, I wasn't a stranger to death growing up in a farm, but this wasn't an animal. This was my father. My dad was now gone, removing one of the consistent anchors that I depended on for meaning, purpose, and significance. I asked myself, what's going to happen now? And even after learning the truth of my new reality, my confusion, my uncertainty, and my disorientation continued. I want to ask you, have you ever lost a leader a friend or a loved one, or even now maybe the prospect of losing someone that left you feeling anxious, fearful, deflated, makes you ask the question, what will I do now in this person's absence? Almost everything that seems insignificant now because of this person maybe leaving, your purpose, your security, and meaning that you may have felt before is sent into disarray. You might be able to relate to the mind and the grief of the disciples in our passage today. And so we continue together in the book of John. Uh, Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room. This is a long time that Jesus was with his disciples, the Last Supper. And uh, so if you guys have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to John 16, 5 through 16. Uh, and in our Bibles, the church Bibles, it's going to be page 753. And if you need a Bible, uh, we would love for you to raise your hand. An usher will bring you one. I see Steve in the back there and Katrina. Uh, they will get you guys a Bible, and uh, our passage today is on page 753. And if you need a Bible, please take one home. That's what they're there for. We want you guys to be in God's Word, and it's a great way to do that. So as we're doing that, let me pray for our message this morning. 
Yeah, God, I pray that we would learn more about you, who you are, what you've done for us. And God, that we would uh, live in response to your truth and that you would help us understand our gaps and where we don't trust you. And so, God, we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, John 16, 5 through 15. Uh, You can read in your Bibles. It'll also be on the screen if you want to follow along there. Jesus is talking. He says, But now I am going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, Where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because we, people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father and I'll be with you no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but he will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. And he will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive, uh, that he will receive what he will make known to you. And all that the, the Father is mine, all that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. So that's our passage today. I'm going to talk a little bit about the work of the Holy Spirit primarily, and before we get into that, I'll talk about the person of the Holy Spirit. So, uh, kind of the main point, main takeaway I want you guys to take away today is that the work of the Spirit is to convict, to guide, and to glorify. So that's what we'll talk about today. The disciples here, if you notice early on in our passage, they're grieved at the prospect of losing Jesus. Losing Jesus' presence meant that they would lose his power and his leadership. Without him, where could they draw their confidence and security and their access to God? You have to understand the disciples were with Jesus for three life-changing years when Jesus started his ministry at the age of 30, and now they're with him. He's now 33. Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, this time is coming to an end here on earth. He was going to change the world. He was going to remove Israel under the thumb of Roman rule. He was going to bring them up to a high place in his new kingdom. But I can imagine the disciples asking, how can this be, how can these things be true if he leaves? In verses 5 and 6, we see the heartache of Jesus that his own disciples don't quite understand what is about to happen, even though Jesus has told them a couple of times, and he's reiterating again in this passage. So Jesus comforts in their grief. He comforts the disciples, tells them it is for their good that Jesus is going away. Because the advocate, sometimes translated the comforter or the helper in some translations, will come. The Greek word, for advocate here is parakletas, parakletas. And John the disciple, he often identifies himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. He's the only person to use this word in scripture. And parakletas, it means someone who is summoned or called to one's side, especially to one's aid. It's one who pleads for another's cause for a judge, counsel for defense, a legal assistant, think of like a lawyer, an intercessor, Uh, And in the widest sense, a helper, aid, and assistant. Even in the Greek terms, uh, uh, sometimes this word parakletos is translated into English paraclete. Greek terms, they had a a paraclete. That's a battle buddy, someone that they could fight back-to-back with, right? And so just kind of think of this type of concept. And so usually when biblical authors talk about the Holy Spirit, 
they use the Greek word pneuma, pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A. It literally translates as either wind or spirit, and it's the same root word that we get our word pneumatic from, pneumatic. And so pneumatic tools, as you might know, is operated and brought to life with pressurized air. So just as the wind animates the leaves on the trees, and in this season maybe causes them to fall off, the Spirit of God gives life, brings life to believers. And Numa, later on uh, in verse 13, is referred in a way that emphasizes the Holy Spirit's work and power. It says the Spirit of truth, the Numa of truth. So the reason it's important to talk about the person of the Holy Spirit is because the Holy Spirit is the third person of the triune God. The Holy Spirit is a co-equal, co-eternal uh, with the Father and the Son, and all three persons share in one identical and undivided being of God, and all three persons are fully and eternally divine. The Holy Spirit is God's permanent presence with us. And so God loves you so much that he intended you and me to be with him and experience life from the source, from our creator. And so God knows that we are powerless within ourselves to live the way that we were designed to live as well. So look at this promise in the Old Testament, all the way back in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. This will be on the screen. This is what God says to the Israelites. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities, from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart and give you remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So God gave this promise to Israel, and Israel is God's chosen people to represent him on earth. The thing about the Israelites is that they were really unfaithful and they were really bad at demonstrating God's character to other people. And so God says this right before this promise. He says, okay, Israel, it's not for your sake that I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do these things for the sake of my holy name because you're, you profaned it. You're doing such a, such a bad job. He's like, you need help, so I'm going to help you. And so later on in, or later on in John, book of John, in uh, John chapter 7, 14, and 15, uh, Jesus also gives promises of the Spirit. He reiterates his problem, uh, promise from uh, Israel in Ezekiel. So John 7, 38 and 39, listen to what Jesus says here. He says, Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, the pneuma, by whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. That is, uh, died buried, and resurrected. John 14, listen to this. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, there's that word again, to help you be, to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth, pneuma of truth. This world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives within you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. But the advocate, the parakletos, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all the things and remind you of everything that I have said to you. And lastly, John 15 says, When the advocate, the parakletos, comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the, the Spirit, the pneuma of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify, that is, give witness about me, Jesus. Back to our passage, Jesus says he must leave for the Holy Spirit to come into the lives of believers. And so we know the Spirit comes in Acts 2, 
uh, at the Jewish celebration of Pentecost, which is a harvest festival, which is really fitting because in Acts 1.8, it says this, uh, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so it's really fitting that the Holy Spirit comes at a harvest festival of Jewish celebration to help other people know and experience who God is. So now that we've talked about the person of the Holy Spirit, I want us to talk about more of the work of the Holy Spirit. And again, back to our main point today, the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict, to guide, and to glorify. To convict, guide, and glorify. The rest of our time this morning, I'm going to expound on the Spirit's work of conviction, guidance, and how the Spirit glorifies Jesus. And then we're going to end our morning with a spiritual practice to align ourselves with God in communion. So the Holy Spirit convicts, and I love how the NIV says this, proves the world to be in the wrong. Proves the world to be in the wrong concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. He guides us into all truth, and he glorifies Jesus the Son. So isn't it interesting that this advocate, someone who comes to one's aid, the Holy Spirit, he's actually acting as a prosecutor, the role of a prosecutor. He's convicting and I remember asking my friend Phil, I said, Phil, I'm feeling this conviction, this misalignment in my, my life with God, and is this a good thing? Because I feel terrible. Like, my, my whole inside life is just in turmoil. Is this a good thing? How can this be good? It feels awful. And Phil goes, Lee, he was walking with Jesus a little longer than I was. He says, conviction from God is evidence of his love for you. So this turmoil that you might feel in your heart, you may think it's terrible, but it's actually like the surgeon's knife, right? It may hurt at the moment, but it's a helpful operation that's going to help us heal. Because if God doesn't pursue you and show you the life and joy that you're missing out on apart from him, how could you say that he's loving and merciful and compassionate? So this pain of conviction is good. It's a good pain because it, mean God, it means God is pursuing you. Pain tells us that something is wrong. Oftentimes we treat pain as a problem and not a symptom. Pain lets us know that something needs to change, and pain is a symptom pointing to the real problem. And so I hope you're asking yourself, well, what is the real problem? And I'm glad you've asked, because our passage answers that. It says, the Holy Spirit proves the world to be in the wrong about sin because they don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus. That's the root of our problem. It means that all sin is sourced in unbelief. All sin is sourced in unbelief. Author Jackie Hill Perry says this very poetically. She says, all sin is grown in the soil of unbelief. All sin is grown in the soil of unbelief. And I used to just think of sin as a behavior or an action that I need to change, but really it's more of an attitude that influences our behavior. Listen to what Romans 1.25 says about sin. It says this, uh, they exchange the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. So sin is exchanging the truth of God for a lie, right? So it means our operational belief, our operational system is actually living from a lie that causes us to sin. Listen to, listen to Hebrews 11.6. I think it expounds on it well. It says, without faith, that is trust in who God is and what he has done, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So sin is not trusting God for life, but anything else other than him, right? It could even be a good thing, right? 
I want to give a word of warning. Maybe, maybe you've come to church for a long time. Maybe you've grown up in the church. Maybe you're new to this. But I want, I want to share with you this warning. It's possible to be exposed and familiar with God's truth. You could even understand it. You could probably pass a theology test. Yet you can also believe it, not believe it, in such a way that is operationally informing your life. Mental or verbal expression of approval or agreement is not the same as faith or trust. Affirmation of what's true is not the same as actually taking God at his word and living as if it is true. This was the general reality of the Israelites in the Old Testament and the Jews and Pharisees during Jesus' time. This is why he's so harsh with the Jews because it's like, man, you guys should get it. You have all the scripture available to you. You guys, you're just not seeing it, right? And so this could also be true of us. We could also be steeped in God's truth yet being failed to believe it in the moment. This is the, uh, I'm going to give you a quote from Pastor Tim Keller. He's really articulate. Uh, He says this, individuals could profess faith, yet at the practical level, the existence of God may have no noticeable impact on their life decisions and conduct. In the American Christian culture, people tend to choose lovers and spouses, careers and friendships, and financial options with no higher goal than their own present-time personal happiness. Sacrificing personal peace and affluence for, for transcendent causes becomes rare, even for people who say they believe in absolute values and eternity. And if you're like me, I needed, I need help to connect the dots from what I believe and how that influences my behavior. So let me illustrate with you guys these five lies that help me discern operationally what I believe instead of taking God at his word. And so these five lies of identity come from a Dutch theologian named Henry Nouwen. Uh, this is good stuff, you guys. Uh, I, just, I had mentors in my life, and they helped me understand that my belief informs what I do. And sometimes I had a hard time putting my finger on what I'm actually believing in, apart from God's truth. Even though I could solve or pass the theology test, doesn't, again, necessarily believe or uh, indicate that I'm believing in taking God at his word. So listen to these five lies of identity from Henry Nouwen. He says, sometimes we believe that our identity is, I am what I have. I am what I do. I am what other people say or think of me. If you're a people pleaser like me, that one sticks out to you. I am nothing more than my worst moment, and I am nothing less than my best moment. Let me, let me elaborate on these lies a little bit. And as, I, as we go through them, just maybe make a personal note. What, which one do you think informs your sinful behavior? Which, which lie do you think you can operationally live from? First lie, if I believe that my value in life comes from what I have, that means greed is justified. That means I literally believe that I am more valuable if you have less and I have more. This lie enables unjust business practices. It it enables exploiting people just so we can try feeling secure and having enough and to try to insulate ourselves from losing our value and feeling a sense of security, which is tied up in money and possessions and in titles and stature. If I try to find life and security in what I have, it leads to death, not life. This reminds me of a quote from Pastor John Piper. He says, No sane man on his deathbed ever comforted his heart with his possessions that his life was well spent. No sane man on his deathbed ever comforted his heart with his possessions that his life was well spent. It makes me think of Romans 6.23. It says, The wages of sin is death. 
And if I trust in lies, the outcome, return, and earning of sin, uh, an unbelief, is death, the opposite of life. And that's what happens if we believe if our value, security, and life comes from what we have. Second lie. If I believe that my value in life comes from accomplishment and performance, what I do, anxiety and exhaustion are the outcomes. We're going to wonder, have I done enough? Will I ever do enough to prove my value worth? It's going to be arbitrary because you're not going to know the answer to that question. This lie communicates that you are more valuable the more that you do. Even uh, Eau Claire's motto is the power of and. They want to get you to do more, right? And so I talk, talk about that to students. That's a big capacity issue, like, oh, I'm too busy. I'm doing a lot of things. And I have to talk about, hey, are you trying to do too much, right? What's setting your priorities? God's kingdom, your kingdom. This lie, maybe. But the good news is that we are free to rest when we understand that our value is given and not earned. That's the gospel. Your value is given and not earned. Work and achievement are good things, but they were never meant to truly satisfy you. If you try to find life and security in what you do, what you achieve or how you perform, it leads to death, not life. Third lie, people pleasers. Listen up, this is me. If I believe that my value in life comes from what people say or think of me, then I'm going to lie, be anxious, narcissistic, and manipulate people so that I can control outcomes. It's impossible to, it is impossible to authentically love someone if your validation is tied up into what they think of you. Does that make sense? It's impossible for you to love someone if your validation is tied up into what they think of you. I cannot truly be your friend if I need your approval because I'm using you in our relationship. I'm selfishly in it for me and not for you. It might look good outwardly, but it feels empty and anxious inside. Your life is not about finding a significant other, those who are married or single, Guys, marriage isn't the answer to fulfillment. Ask any married person that. Your value is not in the performance or respectability of your kids. Parents, listen up. Your life is not in your kids' uh, performance or respectability. Your value is not determined by the fickle perception of others. Sometimes we desperately desire to find a person or a group of people where we can put unfair expectations to satisfy everything for us. That's unfair. A significant other will not give you true life or satisfaction because people were never meant to truly satisfy you. We're created beings. God is our creator. If you try to find life and security in what, you, what other people say or think about you, it leads to death, not life. Fourth lie. If I, if I believe my value in life is defined by my worst moments, I will be wrought with shame and despair. I'll have no hope of redemption. Are there terrible moments in your life that you relive and try to convince yourself of your worth and value? Are you dwelling on your faults and insecurities? That's only going to lead you towards anxiety and depression. It has no power to give you life. Let me say this, though. If you're in a hard spot, there is hope outside of yourself. And it's in a God who's eternal and unchanging. And if our value is wrapped up in someone who's eternal and unchanging, that means I can't lose it and it can't be taken away from me. And God's not going to change. So if you try to find life insecurity and stewing in your worst moments and insecurities, again, it leads to death, not life. And last lie, let's get there. If I believe that my value is defined by my best moments, I will never look to the good of others, but only to the exaltation of self. 
I would not be a good friend, but only a self-seeking narcissist. I would only want to acknowledge and talk about the best parts of me because I need to be nourished and know that my value is proven to myself and others. Are there moments you try to relive to try and convince yourself of your worth and value? Anybody a Bruce Springsteen fan? You guys know the song Glory Days? That's what this song's about, right? He's in a bar, he's talking to this guy, he only wants to talk about high school baseball, right? And he goes, ugh. And then Bruce Springsteen at the end of the song goes, you know, I'll probably be that guy. I like to talk about myself. But again, if you try to find life and security in your past, in your best moments, it leads to death, not life. Because your value is given, not earned. It reminds me of this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says this, If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Right? All these things we try to find life in our created things, not in our creator who is eternal and unchanging. So we were designed to find life in God. So let me ask you a question. Where are you looking for life? Where are you looking for a nourishing fulfillment, a contentedness, a rest for your soul? And what lies do you tend to believe? This world is broken and can't truly satisfy you because we fail to trust Jesus and take God at his word. I'm sure you believe some of these lies and that that has led you to experience pain. But remember, pain is a good thing. It tells us that something's wrong. It helps us look at the true problem, which is our unbelief, and search for the true solution, who is God, and who we are designed to find life within. So other than conviction of sandwich unbelief, we're going to move on. The Spirit also convicts concerning righteousness. Jesus was the Adam that was ought to be. Adam as he should have behaved, as he should have lived. Jesus was the nation of Israel as it ought to have been. Jesus perfectly sought justice, loved mercy, and walked humbly with the Father. Jesus lived with perfect integrity, virtue, purity of life, and rightness. In the way that God created humanity to live, Jesus exercised it perfectly. Now that Jesus is back with the Father, we know the meaning of perfection, the standard to be acceptable to God. Matthew 5.20, Jesus tells his disciples, Hey, I tell you guys, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Holy Spirit lets us know that we are unrighteous and Jesus is righteous. The purpose of the law is not to help us try to do better and try harder to be more moral. It's to understand that we're sinful and we need someone to give us a new life from within. Bring us from spiritual death to spiritual life. The Spirit also convicts concerning judgment Because of the prince of this world, Satan stands condemned. So the Spirit proves or convinces us of the truth of our own unrighteousness, Jesus' righteousness, and now a coming judgment. God will judge the world. When this judgment comes, where will you be found? Are you going to be found in your unrighteousness, trusting in yourself for some of these lies for your value and validation? Or are you going to be trusting in Jesus' righteousness on your behalf? The Spirit works to present us with truth so that we may live in response to it. So if this is making sense for you guys today, don't don't shy away from this. Do the hard work in this conviction and turn to God. We learn in verse 13 that the Spirit guides us into all the truth. In Jesus' absence, the disciples will still need guidance. Jesus himself says that. Uh, He has more to tell them, but they're unable to make sense of it now with him still there. So how does the Holy Spirit guide us into truth? Listen to these words in 1 Corinthians. This is chapter 2, verse 12. In what 
What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. So what has God freely given us? What does he help us make sense of? Romans 8 has a lot of insight here. Romans 8, verses 14 through 17. Listen to this. For those who are led by the Spirit of God, they are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive, the pneuma you receive, brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now we are our children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. The truth that the Spirit guides us in is about the person of Jesus and the significance of what he said and did. Also in verse 13, we learn that the Spirit will tell us of things to come. The Spirit will guide believers in the coming generations without the visible example and presence of Jesus. But, that's a big but here, we learn that all that the Spirit says and gives is from Jesus and that, and that what he says, but all of the Father is his. And so here, here we are again at the unity of the person of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And again, I, I want to plug this again. This doctrine of, of the Christian uh, trinity it distinguishes it from all other religions in the world. Christian worship, and I, I love uh, the psalm that the worship team pointed out, it's ascribing value to God. Christian worship is distinctly Trinitarian. This doctrine expels unworthy ideas of God's glory, and it, it's unworthy to think that God without us would have no one to show his glory to. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit eternally adore, honor, and glorify each other. This doctrine should affect our worldview, our treatment of others, our evangelism and missional endeavors, and our enterprising work in the kingdom of God. I'm going to recommend, uh, okay, I know some of you probably don't like reading theology books, but there's a very approachable book. It's by an author named Michael Reeves. It's called Delighting in the Trinity. So if you're like, man, what's this thing about? It really helps you going to uh, just stew in God's character and I think really come to delight in him. So Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. If you're a reader, again, it's approachable. It's not like you need a PhD to understand this thing, right? Really helpful. All right, remember, our main point, the work of the Spirit is to convict, guide, and glorify. The Spirit glorifies the Son. This truth should help us discern other truth claims, right? Some may speak of dreams and visions and experiences, revelations. They say that they came from the Holy Spirit, but many of these supposed revelations of the Spirit say nothing or almost nothing of the person of Jesus. Can something Devoid of glorifying Jesus, be of the Holy Spirit. No, it cannot. This verse is decisive against all additions and pretended revelations of coming after and besides Jesus. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to testify and declare the things of Jesus, not anything new and beyond him. So if someone claims that they're uh, spirit-filled or living in God's Holy Spirit, yet they're not saying anything about the person of Jesus, you could probably discern that it's Probably not, right? The Holy Spirit is all about the person of Jesus, his work and his word. So now we know the work of the Spirit is to convict concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, guides us into all truth, and glorifies Jesus. And so how do we glorify God in the work of the Holy Spirit? I, again, I think of Pastor John Piper, he's got a quote. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied 
in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So what does it look like to be satisfied in God? What does it look like for us to join in the work of the Holy Spirit in glorifying Jesus? In Ephesians 5.18, uh, it says, Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. We are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. And it's pretty obvious if someone's drunk with wine, right? We know that they're under the influence. When someone is filled with the Spirit, we can probably also see that they're under the influence of something that's supernatural, right? Transformation. So this oneness in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, also requires us to be aligned with God. So though all Christians have an eternal relationship with God, not all Christians are experiencing daily fellowship with him. So you'll notice in your programs and on the screen, I made a little helpful uh, chart. Sometimes I think we get these things confused. So a relationship with God is having a permanent connection with God that cannot be broken. So if you've ever trusted Jesus, that means you were justified, you were made right. Your, your sinfulness is taken away. And when you trust Jesus, he gives you his perfect reputation. So on your behalf, he sees Jesus' righteousness and no longer your sin because it's been paid for. And so your relationship began when you received Christ, John 1.12. For those who received him, those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It lasts forever. It's totally maintained by God, and it never changes. He'll never leave or forsake you. Uh, in John 6 and John 10, it talks about no one's going to snatch you out of my hand, right? He'll never cast us out. And so your relationship's secure. If you've trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, you're secure. You can be 100% sure uh, it says, if you have the Son, you have life. I write these things that you who believe in the name of the Son of God, you may know you have eternal life. Man, that takes, that takes a burden from off, and off from me from trying to have to prove myself, right? Because I know that God loved me even while I was still a sinner. And so I live from this security that's unshakable because God's eternal and unchanging. So out of this security and relationship, we can also experience fellowship with God. Fellowship is exp uh, experiencing a close and harmonious friendship with God. So this also began when you received Christ. It can be damaged, though. Uh, it's maintained partly by you, and it changes when you sin. And sometimes we choose to sin, even though its power has been broken in our lives. And when this happens, our permanent relationship with God as his children is not affected, but our fellowship with him is interrupted. Uh, Pastor Ken gave this analogy a few weeks ago. I'm going to reiterate it. So, for example, if your relationship with your parents is permanent, no matter what you do, you'll always be their child. But suppose you rebelled against them. Suppose you rebelled against your parents. And your parents, and you angrily left home in spite of their efforts to reach out to you. So if that's the case, would you still be your parents' child? Yes, nothing can change that, right? Nothing can change that. But what would happen to your experience of that relationship? What would happen to your fellowship? It would suffer, right? You're not really experiencing a harmonious and close friendship with them. This relationship with our imperfect earthly parents is a picture of how we can also relate to our perfect Heavenly Father. I told you that I lost my earthly father when I was a child, but I take great comfort knowing I'm never going to be separated from my Heavenly Father. The Holy Spirit is God's permanent presence with us as believers. Listen to this truth in Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. It says this, and, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked with him, marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing 
guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those uh, who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So even though each believer is indwelt with the Holy Spirit, not all Christians are directed and empowered, so to speak, filled with the Holy Spirit. Sin keeps both Christians and non-Christians from experiencing God's love, though in different ways. For non-Christians, sin prevents a relationship with God. For Christians, sin hinders our fellowship with God. And all of us sin and break our fellowship with God. Therefore, we need to know how to daily experience God's love and forgiveness for both our actions and our attitudes because our unbelief, again, informs our sinful behavior. So check out this helpful graph on the screen. It's also in your slide. Look at this, look at this first circle. This person does not experience a relationship or fellowship with God. They're not trusting God for life, validation, security, forgiveness, right? They're trusting in maybe one of those lies to live their life for those things. Do you enter relationship by faith? So again, if you trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, you can be sure, not on the strength of your faith, but on the, the object of your faith, which is God, right? If you're falling off a cliff, a strong faith in a weak branch is, is fatally in, inferior to a weak faith in a strong branch. Christianity is not about the strength of your faith, but about the object of your faith. If you've trusted Jesus to pay for your sin, you can be absolutely sure that all of your sin, past, present, and future, is forgiven. You can be 100% confident of eternal life. And again, that doesn't sound, that's not boasting in yourself. That's boasting in God's character and his power over your sin. And so we do that by faith in who God is and what he's done. Second circle, if you look at that, um, so the self is yielding to Christ. Christ is on the throne. Christ is actually in your life and directing and empowering your life. And your interests are often directed by Christ, resulting in harmony with God. You'll notice in that first circle, a lot of our interests are disoriented, right? So this, this means if I value money too much, that I'm actually going to devalue other people, right? And so a lot of these things, we can, uh, if our interests are self-directed, it results in discord and frustration. And so if you're a Christian and we sin, uh, what happens by unbelief? If you notice that top circle, we sin, Right? This is why it's really important for you to identify not just the behavior, but the, the belief behind the behavior. Even though we still have a relationship with God, we're not experiencing fellowship with him. We're not trusting God for life, uh, for value, validation, security. And so this person on the right, uh, even though they have Jesus, their life can much, look much like the person who doesn't have Jesus. And so how do we get back to the center circle? This is what we're going to do today. We get back to the center circle and fellowship with God by confessing the lie that we're believing, confessing our sin. But I think oftentimes we forget to often confess our faith in tandem, right? Oh, I didn't, I, I confess my sin, my unbelief, and we can stop there. But what's really powerful is we need to confess what's true of who God is and what he's done, who we are in Christ. Then we can experience fellowship with God and live a, from a radical gratitude in response to Jesus. When I'm on campus, I get so excited about this, I have to tell people about it. Right? So how do we do it? How do we confess our sins? I, look, at, look at 1 John 1, 9. Look what this says about God and his character. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we, for, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When God brings to your attention something that you have done or thought is sin, you've got to confess it. And that literally just means agreeing with God about it. And if you want to understand, like, do I have a soft heart towards God? Ask yourself this question. 
Do I want to agree with God about my sin? Do I want to agree with God about my sin? So confession, uh, it involves three things. Confess to God that you've sinned. Thank God that he's already forgiven you because of Jesus' death on the cross. And then we turn away from sin and trust God to change your wrong attitudes and actions. This is what's called repentance. The Greek word is metanoia. Metanoia. So if you remember sin in, in Romans 1, it talks about exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Metanoia, changing your mind. Repentance is different. It's exchanging lies for God's truth. Right? Think about it like that. When you're living from God's truth, transformation will happen. So by turning back to God and away from sin, you're going to experience his love and forgiveness provided by Christ's death, moment by moment. And so instead of feeling guilty, you can know that your fellowship with God is restored. Confession is an act of faith. It's exercising our faith that our own security and validation is in Jesus' reputation on our behalf and not our own reputation. Then we are free to own up to the junk and unbelief in our life, living by faith. It doesn't have anything to do with the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith. Again, our faith needs to be in God and his word, not in the strength or expression of your faith or how you feel. Remember this. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the believer's operating system. The HS is our OS. I found that helpful. If you're techie, the HS is our OS. Holy Spirit is the believer's operating system. This is what it means to live by faith. Right now, we're going to practice this by participating in communion together. Listen to these words of what, how Paul describes communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It was the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, I think unworthy manner would be those if, if we're cherishing sin in our heart, if we're not agreeing with God about our sin to him, in an unworthy manner, we'll be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of Christ. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Guys, it's really important that we do this work that the Holy Spirit uh, tries to apply in our life, right? We have to be aware of the lies we believe, and we have to be aware of who God is, what he's done, and who we are in Christ as believers. So you've got to ask yourself three questions. On the back side of your program, uh, ask yourself three questions. Am I ready now to surrender control of my life to the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I ready now to confess my sins? Remember, God in his love has forgiven all of your sins, past, present, and future, because Christ has died for you. So that makes it really easy to come to him because we know that he's already forgiven it. And do I sincerely desire to be directed, empowered, or filled with the Holy Spirit? So take some time now. You're going to confess lies that you believe, confess your faith in the truths of God, and then we're going to come and participate in communion. And so our communion here at the bridge, it's open. It's open communion. That just means you don't have to be a member here to participate. All it means is that you have to be uh, a follower of Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to participate in this with us. Uh, if you'll notice here on the cups, there is, it can be tricky, there's a cellophane that gets to the bread and then a foil layer that gets to the cup. So don't think you're doing one and spilling yourself because it can happen. But 
uh, before we do this, I want to invite up the worship team, and I want to pray just for our time, and take a few minutes here, take a, take a minute or two, maybe during the worship song, to really examine your heart before God. Do I want to agree with God about my sin? Do the work of trying to find the lie that you believe, and then confess your faith in who God is, what he's done, and who we are in Christ. So let me pray, and I'll invite up the worship team. God, we thank you that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, we thank you that your character is compassionate, that you move towards us even when we feel undeserving. God, you demonstrated your love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God, that means I can come to you because you know me, you fully know me, yet you love me. And God, that's so comforting that there's nothing I can do to make you not love me. And so God, I pray that I would come to you, confess my unbelief, and God, also confess truth of who you are, what you've done, and who we are in you. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.